This week on Punch Mountain, be good to your grandparents or one day they'll make you visit them on their dinosaur nightmare island. Hold on to your butts because we're watching Jurassic Park. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake and I'm joined as always by... We spared no expense when we got him, Mr. David Hada. My clever girl. How are you, Mac Blake? Well, my name of my diary just came out. I am doing good. David, I'll be honest with you because we're talking about Jurassic Park tonight. Yes, it's a good reason to feel good. Like, man, this is one of the, the essentials, not just for action movies, but just for movies. Like, you have to watch this before you die or do whatever it is you do when you pass on. Yeah, man, we're going to have fun talking about this one. I tipped our hand there, David. I said tonight, because usually these podcasts release in the morning, but we record them. There's like one hour where neither one of us is uh, drunk high or asleep, and it's 9.15 to 9.30. We just talk really fast and slow it down for the podcast. But Dave, what are your opening thoughts about this thing? What is your history with Jurassic Park? My history with this movie, first time I saw it, June 11th, 1993, opening day at the Willowbrook Mall 6. The next time I saw it, June 13th, 1993, at the Willowbrook Mall 6. This was this was everything a 13-year-old wants in a movie. I Watching this movie again, I had memories of moments that I felt while watching this. This is such an awesome experience. Like it goes, it sounds so silly to say it goes beyond a movie, but it's, this movie's an event. This movie's an experience. It's a, it's a spectacle. I love it so much. I worry that the sequels kind of killed the magic because now there's like six of them or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, watching this movie and trying to remember how I felt the first time watching it, it was so magical. You know, it was dazzling to see the, the special effects at the top of their game. And then to just see like six more of those. I don't know. I hope. I hope people still appreciate Jurassic Park for what it is. But I'll tell you what, you know, uh, you can already hear my enthusiasm. I, I think this could be a game breaker for Punch Mountain. You know, we've, we've leaned hard on the action, but we we don't give enough credit to adventure. And, you know, and there's a distinction to be drawn there. You know, this doesn't really have a villain. I guess the dinosaurs are the villain. It's really just obstacles. It's really just the peril that they must overcome. So it doesn't feel like it fits on the mountain very well. But when you do it so effectively, when you do it so well... I, I think there's room on this mountain for, for something like this. Uh, how about you, Mac? What are, what are your thoughts about Jurassic Park? Well, yeah, Jurassic Park definitely is an adventure movie first. If I had to stick it in one category, that's where I would stick it. However, uh, it, def- it easily fits an action adventure, and we're going to talk about it on this episode as an action movie. But David, this de- movie definitely has a villain, and that is the most dangerous dinosaur of them all, mankind. <laughs> no, I didn't say womankind or humankind. You're off the hook, ladies. These dinos are not your fault. I mean, no, this definitely felt like a game changer when this movie came out for a lot of reasons. This movie kind of kicked off a a different era of visual effects. But yeah, I mean, this franchise is kind of like the Alien franchise in that way where like the first movie, it's like it was very precious with looking at the alien creature, the xenomorph. And then after that, it was kind of like, hey, look, there's an alien over there who gives a shit. Like this movie has so much wonder when it shows you the dinosaurs and you only get those wonder moments like kind of here and there throughout the other sequels. And I've actually not seen all of them. Oh gosh, no. I haven't. I I didn't see the last one and I have seen uh, Jurassic Park 3, but I do not remember it. Oh, and then the second uh, Jurassic World 2? What was that one called? Dominion? No. 
to escape from Volcano Island? What was it called? You were talking over my head. I want to say I haven't seen the last two, maybe even three Jurassic Parks. What? You, you've seen Chris Pratt talk to dinosaurs, right? I've seen a Chris Pratt, but have they made two more of those or three more of those? Uh, they've made three in all. Fallen Kingdom, David, is the name of the movie, which you people are probably, you people are probably screaming <laughs> at your <laughs> podcast players. Ease up. I'll never forget the first Jurassic World because it had uh, <laughs> Lauren Lapkiss and it's like Jake Johansson in it. Jake Johnson, yeah, yeah. Jake Johnson, sorry. Not Jake Johansson. I think it's a stand-up. Anyway. Yeah, David, but flashback to when this movie came out, I was excited about it. And when Kid Mac Blake was excited about a movie coming out and he just couldn't wait to see it. Kid Mac Blake's go-to move, read the book. In which case, sometimes it was like the novelization they'd sell like the school book fair. Yeah, David, I read the <laughs> novelization of Home Alone because <laughs> I didn't see that movie until like months after it came out. I read the fucking Michael Crichton novel which is probably the thickest book I had read at that point. I think it was 12 years old when this movie came out. So yeah, I was pumped for this thing. But yes, David, this movie also holds a very special place in my heart, but does it hold a special place on Punch Mountain itself? We're going to find out. Before we go any farther, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Jurassic Park on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly providing answers. David, is Jurassic Park on any streaming service? No, it is not. The only way to watch Jurassic Park is to have it told to you by a six-year-old. Mac, is Jurassic World Dominion on Amazon Prime? Uh, no, David, it's actually streaming on a new service called Amazon Non-Essential. <laughs> what are the seven Jurassic Park movies? What? Oh my gosh. Okay. Sloth, Greed, Envy, um, Lust. Oh, I don't know. I don't know them all. You're, you're missing one, uh, David, which is uh, Jurassic Park 3. Mac, is Jurassic World Dominion free on Peacock? It is if you know a guy, and I know a guy. Who do you know? I fucked Mr. Peacock, David. <laughs> We've been banging since the 90s. Oh, I had to send Boss Baby pictures of my feet. <laughs> That's fucked up. Hey, David, before we go to a futuristic amusement park where, uh, again, we let dinosaurs overtake us, let's be overtaken by our friendship. It's a friendship check-in. David, how are you? I'm doing great, Mac. I took a nap this afternoon. That's the end of my update. God, I could throttle you. I'm so jealous right now. Throttle, David. Oh, it took effort. I had to acquire the, the time to take that nap. So yeah, it was well-earned on my part. And I'm going to rub it in your fucking face a little bit. On the rare occasions that I have time to take a nap during the day, you know, I'll set like a timer. It'll be like around lunchtime. I'll set a timer for like 20 minutes or something. And around minute 18, I don't fall asleep. But I just enter a, a fugue state where when my timer goes off two minutes later, I'm just like really confused. Like, wait, hold on. This isn't the car dealership. Like I just, my brain just, it's its like that pre-dreaming where it's like, yeah, I got a lot to do today. Oh, I think I might fly with these wings I have, but you're not quite asleep. Is that track at all? I'm with you. Sure. Yeah. You do a lot of drugs. <laughs> it's funny. My memories of Austin are sort of dwindling as they destroy every monument that I have in my head. But one of the memories of Austin that I still hold dear to me is taking a lunch and taking a nap in my car because like those like warm spring afternoons in austin when you just like fall asleep and like you kind of sweat out a few pounds also pretty great oh i'm right there with you the job at which you and i met i was a middle manager there for a little <laughs> bit which is crazy i remember i went to take a nap in my car when i came back one of the people i managed was like hey we were thinking about um coming while you were sleeping and like knocking on the door to wake you up because I told him, I was like, hey, don't bother me. I'm going to be sleeping in my car for the next 30 minutes. And when they told me that, I think it was the only time I've ever snapped at someone I managed. <laughs> I said something like, you better not. 
Uh, yeah, but I meant it. Don't fucking. That, that's that's my time. Yeah, exactly. I'm desperate to be unconscious. That's why <laughs> Seriously, I'm napping in my cooking my brain in this Ford Taurus when I nap in it. So how are you doing, Mac Blake? I'm doing better, David. When I first started watching this movie, I just realized I'd fucked up some audio of some previous episodes a little bit, a little bit. I was just in like in a bad mood about it. I don't think this review will reflect that because, uh, man, Jurassic Park, that'll cheer you up unless you get eaten by a dinosaur. But David, watching this movie reminded me of something I did a lot after this movie came out, which is I read a bunch of Michael Crichton books. Did you ever fall down that rabbit hole? I read Jurassic Park and then I stopped there. But, uh, you know, it was a fun read. I was interested in his other stuff, but I wasn't much of a reader back then. Yeah, me and my sister, like, crushed them all. We read Sphere, uh, Congo, uh, that was one of the killer gorillas and, and other stuff. But it unlocked a couple memories. One is my grandmother on my dad's side was like an avid smoker and she smoked like well into her 90s. The only thing she loved more than smoking was reading and she would just like crush books just like like two a day or something, just insane. And so whenever we had any birthdays or anything, uh, she would give us books and she was like, oh, is there any book you want? And the sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost World would just come out. And I was like, yeah, The Lost World would be great. Thank you, Grandmother Blake. And uh, she was very waspy. That's how she wanted to be called. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Not like grandma or or gammy or anything. She's like, Grandmother Blake, that's how you will address me. No eye contact or hugs. And I remember getting my copy of The Lost World Jurassic Park. It just reeking of cigarette smoke. (laughs) Just baked into every page. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday to me. His final memory that I have of that dude is not a pleasant one, David. Because he wrote a novel, you know, scientists love to weaponize things in his books, be it uh, alien spheres or dinosaurs. But there's this one book where they made like a weather weapon. But the whole point of the book, David, was a climate change denial book. Is that right? Because Michael Crichton was a huge climate change denier. Yes. And in the back of the book, he was like ran a bunch of numbers to why global warming wasn't a thing. I mean, this was the guy who like sparked imagination in so many kids with Jurassic Park like for him to to have this heel turn like that that's so crushing that's such a bummer well David he did die in 2008 so we now have like 15 more years of climate science so you know maybe he would have been convinced but the, the bigger problem David is my I read this book and for some reason I remember reading it and then getting all that weird uh climate change denial information in the back I remember reading him just being like ah, I don't know about this man you seem off but my dad read it, and my dad like was able to use it as a springboard to now where he's like, uh, every time any sort of environmental thing is brought up, he's like, you know, climate change isn't real. Read that Michael Crichton book. And I'm like, God damn it, Michael Crichton. Oh, man. Michael. David, I see that we are approaching some giant doors with torches on either side. Is it time to enter Jurassic Park? Mac, fire up the Jeep. We're going in. All right, David, just in case anyone out there hasn't seen Jurassic Park uh, ever or in a while, just a level set, can you give the back of the box description? Which, by the way, quick back of the box, the week this came out on VHS, my mom bought it at a grocery store for my mom to randomly bring home a purchased movie was unheard of at this point. So it was a huge deal. In fact, for those of you at home, grab your VHS copy that your parents bought at the grocery store because it all happened to everybody uh, and read along with this. Director Steven Spielberg presents a triumph of imagination, suspense, science, and cinematic magic that has quickly become the most successful film in worldwide box office history. On a remote island, a wealthy entrepreneur secretly creates a theme park featuring living dinosaurs drawn from prehistoric DNA. Before opening the attraction to the public, he invites a top paleontologist, a paleobotanist, a mathematician theorist, and his two eager grandchildren to experience the park 
help calm anxious investors. However, their visit is anything but tranquil as the park security system breaks down, the prehistoric creatures break out, and the excitement builds to surprising results. Based on Michael Crichton's best-selling novel, you okay? Keep going. We've got to finish this at some point. <laughs> Based on Michael Crichton's best-selling novel, Jurassic Park stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and Richard Attenborough. It's a breathtaking adventure you'll want to experience again and again. 1993, 127 minutes, directed by Steven Spielberg, rated PG-13. Goddamn, was this uh, box extra big? Did, was the VHS <laughs> case, did they get some extra inches? This is a lot for a movie we've all fucking seen. I was I was typing this one out and I was like, man, they, this really was back when they had they still had to sell you on movies with the back of the box. It's like it's Jurassic Park. The front of the box is what's selling it. We don't need any of this. Before opening the attraction to the public, he invites a council of experts, uh, or he invites some guests to help uh, experience the park. Does someone at that point read and go, well, which guests? Who's coming? I don't know. What are their jobs? Is there any related to them? And like put down the movie in disgust and be like, guess I'm watching Dances with Wolves again tonight. Yeah, there's no goddamn way the word paleobotanist has ever sold a movie. 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. There's another movie that can claim both those things. Schindler's List also came out in December of 1993. Has there ever been a bigger director flex than dropping a all ages except if you're the kind of you know, too young to get, watch dinosaur murder an all ages adventure like Jurassic Park and then the most serious of historical dramas like Schindler's List one of the all time creative years I mean to have the biggest movie of all time and then to have a movie that just cleans up at the Oscars a huge flex giant David I would say the only same year double release director flex that comes close was that year that Alfred Hitchcock released uh, Vertigo. And also just that documentary was, that was nothing but upskirt photography. Mac, you weren't supposed to know about that. David, I told you I know a guy. That, that <laughs> peacock dude. <laughs> He's got a lot of creep films. Okay, David, how does this movie begin? This movie begins with the classic Universal logo, and then we're going to start with a dinosaur transport gone wrong. We don't get to know much about the dinosaur, except that it likes eating low-level employees. With the soon-to-be-open Jurassic Park in jeopardy, we learn from attorney Gennaro, played by Martin Ferrero, that experts will need to approve the park before it can be allowed to open. This is going to be an amazing prologue to this movie, Mac. Yeah, we see some trees and they're shaking. It's a dino fake-out, David, because it's not a dinosaur coming through those trees. It's a piece of heavy machinery that has a box, and that box has a dinosaur in it, but we do not see that. Oh, because I just thought it was the cheapest looking dinosaur I'd ever seen. It was like, it's just a giant box on a forklift. No, the special effects are great in this movie. I, I would understand that if you got the green screen edition of this movie. Yeah, you know, this prologue is great. It just, it sets a tone right away. You're just watching these like factory workers carry out their job. And then all of a sudden you're not really expecting it. And then one of the workers kind of gets grabbed by the, whatever's inside there. He's on the ground, he's screaming for help, and then he gets picked up in the air. It's a, you know, it's a basic magic trick, but at the same time, I wasn't expecting it uh, the first time I watched this movie. And I still mark out. It's just, it's a movie announcing, we're going to chomp some people, and you better enjoy it. Dave, because this movie, you know, ended up being uh, such a big blockbuster, so many little things in this film are iconic. And the way that after the dinosaur is mauling that guy, the character Robert Muldoon shouts, shoot her, shoot her. Every time I watch someone uh, murder a dinosaur now, I, I hear those uh, words in my head. A lot of souvenirs from this movie. A lot of quotable lines. A lot of just memorable shots. Uh, this movie lives in us all, Mac. Yes, David. In a very real way, I never left Jurassic Park. So we're going to go from this accident scene. Uh, we're going to go to a dig site where the attorney is trying to meet up with Hammond. But Hammond left because that's just what millionaires do. Yeah, it's John Hammond. As the back of the box described him as a wealthy entrepreneur who secretly creates a theme park. 
Don't you miss the days when that's all billionaires did was create their own theme parks instead of, I don't know, like ruin Twitter or whatever. Oh, as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, man, how much could this have cost? This is a very easy and fun hobby to have. But, you know, Hammond is just like every other capitalist pig. You know, he hates inspections. Well, you know, this lawsuit, uh, this poor guy who got chomped, it's going to slow down the opening of my park. And it's like, man, I don't know. We weren't even there in 1993 with like millionaires. We weren't like just automatically like, boo. But right away, I'm kind of like, okay, fuck you then. If anything, this movie uh, made us not like billionaires for the reason that we, why aren't you guys investing in dinosaur parks? Like, who doesn't remember driving by Ted Turner's mansion in Atlanta and just, uh, you know, throwing whatever you could grab, uh, a brick, some loose shrapnel, and just screaming, where's our dinosaur park, you billionaire fuck? And that's going to be the prologue. So let's start this movie. Uh, Let's start it in the Badlands near Snakewater, Montana, where the team of Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler, played by Sam Neill and Laura Dern, they're leading a fossil dig slash paleontology fantasy camp when their work is disturbed by the arrival of John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough. He'd like their seal of approval on the park so it can open. Meanwhile, at a little cafe in Costa Rica, Dennis Nedry, played by Punisher Warzone's Wayne Knight, plots to steal embryos from Jurassic Park in exchange for a very nice bag filled with money. Uh, Yeah, David, so this dig... In the snake water, Montana. The key scene here is they're looking at, uh, is this like a raptor skeleton? I don't remember. I believe it is. Yeah, because that's when uh, Grant's going to start to freak out on that little kid and be like, you respect the rapper. You show respect. Yes, this little kid is like, it looks like a turkey to me. And then Grant, yeah, he's like, oh, it looks like a turkey, huh? Let me detail how a dinosaur will kill you. David, when I first saw this movie, I was like, yeah, get him. Get that kid. Now watching this as an adult, uh, I have a very different take on it. Well, I'll tell you what, man. My first question for this kid, what are you doing here? You know, like I thought this was an archaeological dig. I thought this was like college students or something. Where are your parents? What are like, if you're bored, go somewhere else. See, David, that's the thing. I guarantee you his parents brought him to this dig. One of those people is his shitty parent who's like, hey, you know, it'll be fun, Bryce is instead of, you know, spending the summer at home or hanging out with your friends, why don't you come with me to a desert where we can slowly brush away some dirt to reveal some dinosaur bones? Now, probably if you told me you're going on a dinosaur dig and I was like this kid's age, I'd be more excited about it. But like this kid on day two, I'd be like, oh, this is a huge mistake. Fucking kill me. So I don't blame this kid for being pissed off at all because I guarantee this dig is boring as fuck. And the fact that he calls a dinosaur a turkey, Grant to go a Hannibal Lecter mode on him, I don't know. I don't know if this is supposed to be like an endearing start to uh, Alan Grant, uh, but uh, now it is in in the year the year of our goddess, 2023, it is not. Well, you know, they talk about it after this scene where it's a charmingly clunky introduction to Alan Grant and his awkwardness around kids. But like he goes to 11 on this one. He pulls out a retractable claw that he has that he stole from some dig, I guess, somewhere else instead of putting it in a museum. And he's like showing the kid where the raptor would slice him open. He goes for the groin at one point. I'm like, hey, man, like you could have just said the stomach and other places. But David, that would have been a perfect opportunity for if that kid's parent was there for the parent to be like, hey, leave my kid alone, you fuck. But instead, I'm guessing the parent was silently like, oh, no, here, just, yeah, let him have it. Only way he learns is if you uh, mime a vivisection of him. Oh, Gavin's needed this for years. But Grant is like, you know, they're alive when they start to eat you. So, you know, show them a little respect. It's like they're dead, loser. They've been dead for millions of years. I'm on the kid's side. I'm In an alternate movie, in an alternate universe, I wish the kid would have just walked away, just alpha-dogged Alan Grant. I haven't seen that last Jurassic Park movie or, you know, Jurassic World 3. 
I assume it's the kid now back for revenge, kind of like a syndrome in The Incredibles, where he got shafted by Grant and the entire movie is a death trap for him. If it's not, then shame on you, movie producers. Speaking of shame on these movie producers, so after this interaction with the kid, it's Sattler and Grant, uh, they're walking away from the situation. And Sattler's talking about how one day she'd like to see Grant with kids. But then I'm realizing, oh, this is Dr. Grant and perhaps his prize pupil, Mac, what's the age difference here? What's the dynamic? At some point in the um, recent past, I think I saw an article where it's like Laura Dern regrets the age difference between them. Hmm. I'm not 100% on that. Or maybe it was just an article saying like they were you know, not close in age. But yeah, I remember when I saw this as a kid, to me, they were the same age. Mm-hmm. They were like both adults. But yeah, David, it turns out there's a 20-year age difference between the two. So yeah, are we just watching a professor get like creepy with one of his grad students? Hold on, you're telling me the maker of Raiders of the Lost Ark has some creepy uh, older man dynamic with some younger lady? Uh, who would have thunk it? But David, I just gotta say, speaking of Laura Dern, this is our second Dern movie in a row. I know we said we were gonna save these movies for Dern Simber, our celebration of all things Laura and Bruce Dern. However, uh, I guess we just got too excited. I couldn't wait. But Hammond enters their trailer, he's drinking their champagne, and he's like, look, I'll, I'll fully fund your research for another three years. If you come, uh, just review this park. And they're like, what park? And he's like, hey, don't fucking worry about that. And I guess they never ask another question because they are stunned when they arrive at the dinosaur park that has real dinosaurs. Well, I mean, what on earth could it possibly be if, if you're them? Because he says, oh, this, you know, it's, this park will be right up your alley. And he's talking to a paleontologist and a paleobotanist. And it's like, are we just going to dig? Is it like a digging park? Which, don't get me wrong. The dig looked so soothing that I went on Amazon and looked up dig kits. Are you familiar with these, Mac? No. It's a big clump of dirt and like you kind of just excavate it and then you you take little like toys and trinkets out of it. It's really cool. Okay, so you actually get something to be excavated. Exactly, yes. What is it? Is it like law surprise dolls? What are we talking about here? Talking about some crybaby magic tears? Is that in there maybe? Little homies, some wacky wall crawlers, you bet. Yeah. Man, speaking of, real quick, I was doing a Master Pancake stream when the new Jurassic World movie came out and somebody was like talking about it on the the chat that accompanies the Twitch channel for Movie Mocking Group, Master Pancake Theater. I had just watched the Netflix animated show, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, uh, a bunch of episodes of that with my three-year-old kid at the time. And so I asked out loud like, oh, uh, are, are any of the Camp Cretaceous characters in there? Like Darius or Brooklyn or Yaz? I was expecting people to be like, holy shit, Mac knows the names of his characters on this children's show. But the only responses I got were like, no, unfortunately not. They weren't in there. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. (laughs) Well, shit. But David, some people are already plotting against our valiant, rich people. And it's a little industrial espionage here, David, because we see Wayne Knight playing, at this point, a character we do not know much about him, Nedry. And another character, Dodson, approaches him. If you steal some uh, dinosaur embryos from Jurassic Park, uh, here's a big bowling bag full of money. And if you bring some more back, I'll give you some more money. And then uh, Wayne Knight here, just, uh, you know, being a real ass bag is like, okay, well, how do I get him out? What is the the mechanism that Dodson gives Nedry to sneak out these dino embryos? This rival company has spared no expense because they've got like a dummy Barbasol can. You take off the husk of it, the, the shell of the Barbasol can, and inside it's this little compartment that holds up to 15 embryos. Mac, we haven't even seen a dinosaur in this movie yet. This is already the most impressive thing. This is just as cool as anything in the movie. And you know who shares that opinion? The character of Nedry. 
I love how much Nedry, I wrote down in my notes, Newman. I love how much Newman <laughs> loves the like James Bond style shaving cream can. The bottom screws open. <laughs> it's great. Oh, God. It's cool to compartmentalize inside. <laughs> you got so that's great. Customs can even check it if oh, they want to. Let me see. Go on. Oh. There's enough cooling inside for 36 hours. No menthol? Damn. You know what? Because that character is having so much fun, this like very transactional scene is fun. Oh my god! Yeah, he's he's such a shit. Even at the you know even the tag at the end where the the check comes and he's like, "Don't cheap out on me now, Dots." And it's like, "Oh my gosh, you're so good." But it's so funny to think, yeah, here's the real villain of this movie: this overworked contractor. So Grant, Sattler, and Hammond take a helicopter out to the island of Isla Nublar with rock star and mathematician Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. Uh, actually, uh, chaos, chaotician. Uh, yes, yes. And they find out what's going to make this park so special. Goddamn dinosaurs. We get a very helpful video presentation from Hammond explaining how the park came to create goddamn dinosaurs. And our heroes crash to the lab to find out more about these abominations in the eyes of God. I saw this movie in theaters. I remember seeing the helicopter with retractable landing gear. And so when you see this helicopter has no landing gear, I remember being thrown by that. <laughs> like, what? what? What's going on? How's it going to get on the ground? What's, uh, so nervous for this helicopter already. I'm glad I don't feel alone on that one. Good. So here we meet Ian Malcolm, a very memorable character, played by Jeff Goldblum at his most Goldblumiest. And Ian Malcolm, David, he's a real cool guy. You know how I know he's cool? Because he's wearing a leather jacket to an island off of Costa Rica. <laughs> oh my God, Mac. This is classic peacocking. It's very clear early on. Ian Malcolm is a member of the pickup artist community. He's right there with mystery. He's right up there with all the all the greats. You know, I'm teasing a little bit, but like when you really get down to it at times, like how gross, not gross, but like just how uncharming Ian Malcolm could come off, but how charming Jeff Goldblum makes him. It's astonishing how uh, how we end up rooting for these characters. Yeah, he's got two modes. One is like the uh, philosopher mathematician and the other mode is like time to get this D wet. He just cannot turn it off. I mean, there's definitely some stuff I noticed in this viewing that I had not noticed previously. He's not the uncreepiest guy. Yeah. Compared to Malcolm, the movie kind of tries to make Alan Grant look a little hapless, look a bit like a schlub. There's a moment here where the helicopter's starting to go down. It's hitting some turbulence, so everyone's buckling their seatbelts. And then Grant reaches for his, you know, his male and female, and he's only got two females, and he can't put them together. And that's supposed to be like a very you know, humorous moment. But there's a one for one for everything. You have to imagine Sattler has the same problem sitting right next to him with two males, like, Grant's not the clown here. We're all clowns in this grand game. I didn't realize how much of a foreshadowing that seatbelt scene was, because as we know, the Jurassic Park dancers are all female, and Grant's going to have his hands full with some, uh, you know, all females again a little bit later. Steven Spielberg, you are a master. But David, the helicopter lands, and you could tell it's a real shot and not a CGI helicopter because it's not a very interesting shot to look at. I just remember being like, I've never, <laughs> the framing of it is like, so who cares? But at the same time, it's like, hey, there's a waterfall, there's a helicopter, there's a lot to look at, you greedy pig. So <laughs> I'm sorry it's not a zero point perspective. But yeah, we're going to see the dinosaurs for the first time. You know, everyone is in awe. Everyone pulls off a really great awe face. And then Hammond's going to have the line, the music's going to swell. He's going to say, welcome to Jurassic Park. That wasn't a mark out moment for me, but I want to give a shout out to the first feeling I had watching this movie for the first time. And man, like it really was, you know, you trusted this movie at that point. You were like, wow, you've shown me a lot. Let's go see some more. This is awesome. Yeah, the first shot of the Brachiosaurus 
The graphics are not as impressive as they were in 1993, but you know, it still works. It still tells that story. But yes, David, when you when you get the wide shot of the herd, you know, the dinosaurs are down there like, you know, drinking by the watering hole, the music swells. I, I marked out. I probably marked out originally when I saw it in theaters. And maybe some of that mark out moment was that memory. You know, it, I don't know. It's a really awesome moment. The amount of wonder, like wondrous shots that this movie is able to uh, produce is great. Well, you know, and, and thanks in no small part, like I said, you know, everybody's pulling their weight. Everyone is reacting well. The music is going to do its job here. John Williams, you magnificent bastard. You've done it again. Like even just even just the smaller pieces here, like when they're pulling up to the visitor center, it sounds a lot like the the sort of first order marches from Last Jedi. This is solid, solid effort. Yeah. John Williams, again, just can't not crush it. But we're going to get into the visitor center. We're going to see the video presentation. We're going to get a very oversimplified explanation of cloning. There's no no discussion of mutants at all. But this is good. This is good for the audience. This makes us feel like we're about to go on the same ride that these characters are. So it works. But there's a moment here that kind of threw me a little bit where, where Hammond is trying to sell the park. And he's like, you know, we're going to have the state-of-the-art technology. And I'm not just talking about the rides. Now, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, dinosaurs aside, because we already know he's talking about the dinosaurs, but like, what other tech could there possibly be at an amusement park? Like, I got to figure Dippin' Dots is, is somewhere around this area. But I mean, other than that, what, are, what other innovations are there going to be? Uh, the kind of credit cards you can just tap instead of swipe. Uh, that was a Jurassic Park invention. But David, part of the original introductory tour was done by, you know, Hammond is involved in it. So he gets up there and he is uh, interacting with a video presentation. And the, on the video, it says his clone. So was the plan for him to be at every fucking ride? I guess so, yeah. Well, I mean, unless they cloned a Hammond to be there for every ride. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, I think that happens later. But David, and then the, uh, the presentation is handed over to Mr. DNA. An, an iconic movie character here, which why was Mr. DNA super Southern? I never understood that. Hi, <laughs> hey, let's look at some dinosaurs. Well, you know, it's the region of the country I associate most with intelligence and science. So yeah, it makes mo total sense to me. Yeah. Now, when we found one of them bugs trapped in amber, they didn't have enough DNAMs. We mixed in a little bit of that blood magic in with them uh, pad hoppers, you know, them froggers. <laughs> I don't know if any of that is real, whatever. Here's the problem with Jurassic Park, David, is if you were going to watch any of the uh, Jurassic World movies, then you, you need to delete Jurassic Park from your mind. They, they do nothing better, uh, except maybe the, the, you know, the, the uh, quality of the CGI. Because I remember at some point they have like a celebrity showing you how something works in Jurassic World. And instead of, you know, Mr. DNA, uh, it's Jimmy Fallon. Oh, no. Neat. Yeah, it's a, it was a big groaner. I've come around to Jimmy <laughs> Fallon where I, you know, it's like, look, he, he runs a fun show. He has fun. Fun is fun. I don't need to, to dunk on this, this dude anymore. But at the same time, uh, not for me. Um, but David, our scientists are like, we don't want to see this oversimplified tour we're going to bust out of this ride and, and go to the lab itself. And in this lab, David, it's run by uh, Big Dick Wong himself, B.D. Wong, playing a character that would become the actual villain of the next three Jurassic World movies. Is that right? Again, I haven't seen the third one, but I think so. This is all new to me. I've, you know, I've been so precious with the Jurassic Park series that, like, you know, I know I've seen the second and third ones. But I, don't, I couldn't tell you a thing about them, except at gymnastics at some point. This movie, its cast is fucking deep. 
I mean, it's got such a good cast. And the fact that, you know, B.D. Wong happened to be in this super small role. I mean, like, what a gift. Like, later on, when they're like, oh, how do we write these movies? And I was like, oh, you know who had a very important but throwaway role? A actor of the caliber of B.D. Wong. Who, did you ever watch uh, Mr. Robot, David? The show that you like to call Dr. Robot, which I always thought was funny. <laughs> no, I, I never did. He's great in that. He's he's uh, one of the like the main villain. Uh, which, speaking of, that was one of those things whenever Mr. Robot would come up because you would call it Dr. Robot. <laughs> I would call it Dr. Robot Yay! just waiting for people to correct me. Mac, that's no way to live. I know. I'm not a real like fuck around person when it comes to shit like that. But for some reason, <laughs> I just like Dr. Robot so much that I would say the phrase Dr. Robot as much as possible. And they'd be like, huh, that person never corrected me. What's going on here? They must really think less of me. <laughs> they were like, do I scare them in some way? Or are they going to tell the tale of like, God, there's a time back when stop saying Dr. Robot. This is a great podcast, David. But, you know, but going back to the, the ride and it's just, there's like this panoramic window where you look into the lab, you see Big Dick Wong, you see all the scientists working. I have to imagine that's distracting for the scientists. Just have like gawkers, just have yokels like pressing their faces against the window. But then after a while, would they like it? Would they become celebrities? Would they become attractions of themselves? And like the people would clamor to see like, oh, Gary's here this week. Are you asking if people are like uh, shaking little pennants back and forth that have a picture of B.D. Wong on them? Yes, I think absolutely. I remember the second book better than I remember the second movie, I guess, because the whole plot of the second book was like this laboratory scene was like too clean. Like this is like the showroom floor. Where's the factory? And so that is why I think Isla Sonar or Isla Sonar was the like uh, factory island of Jurassic Park. That's where all the uh, not ready for primetime dinosaurs lived. The idea of finding them distracting, I think this was really like, you know, oh, all our work is done on another island. Here we're just going to like put our attractive scientists and hatch an egg out of a legs pantyhose container uh, every 30 minutes. Well, mission accomplished. But, uh, you know, speaking of that egg, it's going to sound stupid to gush over the special effects of this movie, but even like, the animatronic effects are really good here. You know, this dinosaur coming out of the egg, everyone's reacting really well, but it's really easy to act against something that realistic. Like it's not tennis balls on a stick in front of a green screen. That's, you know, you can convince yourself that's a real fucking dinosaur. Yeah, practical effects in this movie look great. And a lot of credit goes to Stan Winston studio. Uh, but actually, David, a young Wesley Snipes made most of the uh, special effects in this movie, uncredited. Is there anything he can't do? <laughs> he can't. <laughs> Why do I think? Why did I think it was funny to pretend Wesley Snipes made? That doesn't make any sense, David. <laughs> no fucking sense. None. David, before this movie came out, have you had you ever heard the term velociraptor or even raptor talking about a predatory bird? 100% no. I never had. And now look, David, there is a, a championship NBA team called the Raptors. My God. The Raptors, they really were like the breakout stars of this movie. Yeah, you know, kudos to the Raptor Council. I mean, they had a hell of a run in the 90s. They, you know, they got their, their clients' names everywhere. There's still a franchise. Yeah, man, Raptors, good for you. It's to this day why I won't go to the city of Toronto, because I believe it is overrun by Raptors. Mac, I keep telling you that's not true. Uh, and I say to you, clever boy. David, after the gang watches a cow get fed to these Raptors, mm, who's hungry? Malcolm and Sadler express their concerns about this Jurassic Park over lunch. But Dr. Grant really wants to see some more dinos first. Good news! A tour of the park can begin because Hammond's grandkids have arrived. Those grandkids are Tim and Lex, played by Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards, respectively. David, we get an interesting cut here. We get a cut from the raptor meal to a human meal. And did you take anything away from this? Because the movie shows us the, like, the ropes, I guess, that were used to lower a cow 
into the pin and these ropes have now been like slashed apart, I guess, uh, as the Velociraptors just ripped that cow to shreds. And then we get a cut to a plate of Chilean sea bass. Alejandro just prepared. He just crushed it. I don't know who played the <laughs> chef Alejandro in the movie, but amazing work. And Dr. Sadler uh, looks a little grossed out by it. But was there supposed to be, was it just a fun cut or were we supposed to get some meaning from this? You know, I a little bit of both. I, I think, you know, it is a fun cut. Spielberg's very good about those, those like editing touches, those touches of humor. But I think also, you know, there there could be some meaning in this like, you just saw this the most barbaric thing in you capitalist pigs. You'll just sit there and eat your Chilean sea bass. Yeah, like you could play it both ways. I choose to play it the former. Yeah, maybe not capitalist pigs, but Ian Malcolm here talks about how you don't respect the the nature you're messing with. The idea that we cut from these wild animals that are ripping apart a cow to the overconfidence of humans just being served some Chilean sea bass. It's like you dudes are outgunned when it came when it comes to like natural selection here. We're getting weird reactions out of a lot of stuff here. In in fact, going back a minute. The, the gang is watching the, the cow get eaten, or, you know, or they're watching the cow get served to the dinosaurs. And Grant's kind of watching with horror, but interest, curiosity, all those things. And then you pan over to Hammond, who is watching Grant, but watching him with like, you want to gauge his reaction throughout the park. You want to see, oh, you know, he's watching the T-Rex. Let's look at the amazement on his face. Oh, he's looking at this raptor being born. Let's look at the amazement on his face. But like, hey, this dinosaur is ripping a cow to shreds. Let's not look at the amazement on his face. I mean, I did not notice that, but I mean, that tracks, I guess, because Hammond is into all of this. He thinks all of this is great. And so, of course, and he thinks if anyone's going to be on his side, it's like Grant. So the idea of like this dinosaur ripping a cow to shreds, Hammond doesn't think that's uh, horrifying. He thinks it's awesome. And I think that's why he was like looking at Grant and be like, right? Cool, right? <laughs> and I guess Grant is like, I'm so scared. Like, it just, that tracks. But then we cut to the back to the lunch, and there's like a philosophical discussion going on that Ian Malcolm is leading about the appropriateness of, look, you just brought dinosaurs back to life, and now you want to put them in a, a park? And here, we'll get a little bit of the speech right now. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it, and packaged it, and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well... But David, the same conversation could be had about making the sequels to this movie. Because it's like you had this movie, and you, you didn't respect it, right? You know, you, you, didn't, uh, you didn't make it, and so you made all these sequels that just, like, aren't the same. Uh, that's way more meta than the movie intended. I don't think it was meant to be uh, an intention at all. No, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you there. You know, dinosaurs were precious in their time and we hold them in a certain regard. This movie was precious and we just bastardized the hell out of it. I think there's a lot of uh, parallels to be drawn there. Yeah, but while they're watching the feeding scene, uh, we enter here again, the, uh, the game master of Jurassic Park, uh, Robert Muldoon. Yeah, this is going to be Muldoon played by Bob Peck. He's the one getting us up to speed on the raptors. He says that they bred eight, but then one of them decided to kill all of them but two. And that's basically the raptor gang now. And I thought that was so cool, especially, you know, for a movie, you know, like I said, that doesn't have a villain in the same way that like these other action movies on the on the mountain have capital V villains. To have a creature, but still kind of project this sort of badassery, I thought that was very cool. Yeah, it is super cool. 
And it, it's funny because it reminds me, one of the plot points of Jurassic World, again, talking about a movie that we're not talking about, is in that movie, they're like, hey, let's we uh, came up with a brand new dinosaur. Like we mixed together a bunch of DNA and now we have like a Vampirosaurus or something like this. And the reason for doing it is they're like, numbers to Jurassic World uh, visitors are, are down because people are tired of looking at dinosaurs. Uh, bull fucking shit, David. You know how I know that people are not bored of uh, looking at dinosaurs? Because they made six Jurassic Park movies. And it's just something other movies like don't get, and Spielberg definitely gets, which is you see the wonders and you hide the horrors. When you have these dinosaurs that are like, you know, amazing to look at, like when we see, you know, the Brachiosaurus herd or, or the, uh, I don't know what, a Gallimimus or whatever, like it's great. And then when you have the scary dinosaurs, you know, with the Velociraptors, we saw one in the beginning, but we only, we didn't never laid eyes on them. And here again, we, we visit the raptors, but we don't actually see them. It's a, a winning formula because by the time the both the T-Rex and the Raptors actually show up, you are ready to run. Yeah, definitely. You know, hearkening back to the, the playbook Spielberg used for Jaws, where the shark was teased throughout the movie and it built up the tension and the horror, we kind of get our cake and eat it too with this movie, where Spielberg is such a master at building tension in the quieter moments and, you know, building tension away from the dinosaurs. But also, he's not afraid to show you those goddamn dinosaurs. It's, you know, he's at the top of his game with this movie. He sure is. And David, now it is time for some kids to come because Spielberg loves precocious children. And here we get two of them, Tim and Lex. Two of the better ones in the Spielberg canon. I remember even being a kid, being 13 years old, watching this movie, being like, oh man, kids, they're going to ruin this thing. Uh, they, they do well. Uh, so I'll, that'll be the last time I say anything negative about them. But in this viewing, I did check my watch at this moment because it was just like watching this movie as an action movie and trying to watch it in the context of, of Punch Mountain, I started to get a little antsy. Yeah, because we are, what did your watch say, David? 38 minutes, 38 minutes into the movie. Yeah, because we're 38 minutes in this movie and uh, no action yet. But, you know, the way it's so well shot and, and paced that I did not mind. But yeah, in my notes, I wrote down Spielberg loves precocious children. But David, what I actually wrote before I corrected it was Spielberg loves precious children, which makes it seem like I'm, I don't know, some weird like child eater, you know, like, Oh, he loves his precious children. But yeah, these kids do a great job. They pull their weight in the movie. But also, when Tim is peppering Dr. Grant with questions, he's like, I read this, I read that. He mentions, he's like, I read this one article in Omni Magazine. David, shout out Omni Magazine. Are you familiar with this magazine at all? Are you kidding me? I went looking for Omni on eBay the other day before I watched this movie. Yeah, because apparently uh, the founder of Penthouse Magazine, Bob Guccione, was obsessed with like living forever or something like that. And so he's like, I'm going to create a magazine that is about this kind of stuff. And also some weird like sci-fi articles and uh, or short stories, I think. Anyway, my grandmother had like a big stack of Omni magazine and the covers, you know, they look like progressive rock album covers. So as a kid, I was like, <laughs> whoa, what is this magazine? And then I remember opening up and reading and being like, oh, this is, I'm bored. No, well, yes. <laughs> but it was also like, it was cool just to have a monthly magazine that, you know, tested the imagination. I don't know. I was very nostalgic for it the other day. Yeah, Omni Magazine. Shout out. But yeah, you know, it's a very charming moment. We get to know a little more about Tim. He's he's no dummy. You know, these kids are no dummies, and I'll give this movie credit for that. But the way Tim and Lex both gaze upon Alan Grant, what spell does Grant have on this family? Hammond? The kids, they all just want to like give him a big old hug and just stay with him forever. Sam Neill's handsome. And also, he's nagging them a little bit. And kids respond to that. But then Bienvenido saw Jurassic Park, David, because this tour gets going. Yes, but it's going to get off to an underwhelming start. 
because the Dilophosaurus and the T-Rex are no-shows on the tour. Ian Malcolm explains Chaos Theory, but Grant and Sattler live it by getting out of the Jeep and attending to a sick Triceratops. Meanwhile, the approaching storm is gaining in strength, and Nedry's bug list is getting longer. This park is going to be okay, right, Mac? Yeah, because Nedry, David, he is uh, like a, a coder. He's like a contractor who's like working on the code that runs Jurassic Park, uh, which we find out when we see the Jurassic Park behind-the-scenes offices here. But yeah, let's talk about this tour that they're on. This is like the first run of what's probably going to be like the main part of Jurassic Park, which is driving around looking at dinosaurs. Right. How hard can this be? It's just drive your Jeep past a paddock, point at some dinosaurs, and keep going. But yeah, this, this doesn't go so hot. The, everybody on this tour sort of has this feeling of skepticism. And like right away, you know, they're driving up to the big doors. And as they get closer, Lex is like, those doors are going to open, right? They're like, we're not going to crash into those doors. And like, man, the confidence you have and your grandfather to pull off this billion-dollar park is not there. But sure enough, we go to the first paddock, and the Dilophosaurus is a no-show, and they go on. But, like, if it's me, I know this doesn't apply for, like, a zoo, but in the case of Jurassic Park, I'm not going anywhere until I get proof of life on that dinosaur because it could be anywhere in my imagination. I need to see it before I can move on. Do you remember an earlier scene, the lawyer was talking about how much they were going to charge people to come to Jurassic Park? Do you remember the number? Anywhere from like two to 10,000. Yeah. If I'm going to a, day. a park in 1993 and I'm spending 2,000 a day, uh, I'm in a fucking helicopter or else I'm burning that place <laughs> to the ground. Make me sit in a goddamn Jeep. Not even like a uh, fancy tour boost. But yeah, David, this tour starts and we, uh, the guy's like, oh, it's Richard Kylie. We spared no expense. And to this day, I was like, okay, who the fuck is Richard Kylie? And I had to look him up and I was like, okay, so some dude. He very clearly spared some expense. And yeah, this go around, I knew that John Hammond's catchphrase was, uh, spared no expense. I didn't realize just how much he says it in this movie. But when they get to the Dilophosaurus uh, pin or paddock or whatever, the voiceover is like describing the Dilophosaurus. And this is uh, Chekhov's description because he's like, oh, the Dilophosaurus uh, spits poison, paralyzing its prey, which will happen later in the movie. David, the dinosaur that spits poison? You know what? How about no? How about you don't make those? But that's a feeling that permeates throughout this tour. Like even the plant life, as we point out later, you know, it's poisonous, but they picked it because it looks nice. Like this is a billionaire who just wanted to throw a lot of money and see dinosaurs he liked without any thought to how it would affect the ecosystem. Yeah, this is a very relatable movie. But let's say that same billionaire was like, I want to set up a zoo on my private island. I want one of those black mamba snakes. And like, hey, black mamba snakes spit poison up to 10 feet. I think he would care. So if you have like a... Like, oh, this dinosaur spits poison up to 10 feet. They'd be like, ah, you know what, man? Maybe not this one. Uh, that's okay. That is one joke over the line, I guess. But then we're not the only ones watching this tour, David, because we cut to the ops room of Jurassic Park, which seems to be staffed by two people, Wayne Knights, Dennis Nedry, and Samuel L. Jackson playing Ray Arnold. Now, David, like a lot of movies, an ops room like this is criminally understaffed. Like, I mean, think back about Pacific Rim. There's like thousands of people, seemingly, in the operations room for these giant robot mecha suits, these Jaegers. But the people actually running the show, it was like two guys. And so here again, we have a criminally understaffed operations room. But unlike most movies, it's a plot point here. They know it. They're like, look, this is not enough people here. What are we doing? But even Nedry points it out. He's like, you should be thanking me. I thought this was what you wanted. Like, we can run this entire park from this room with minimal staff for three days. So it, there's a there, there's a difference of opinion here because like on the one hand you've got Nedry thinking hey I've done a really good job here it's the three of us 
But on the other hand, like just looking at his desk there, it's like you guys could just, you know, chip in for some janitorial staff. Like it starts to become clear throughout the movie. Like if Hammond just spent a little more money, if he just like didn't care about like cutting corners, like, you know, skirting OSHA violations, taking care of his employees who feel underpaid and overworked, we could have avoided all of this. And David, I definitely have had experience where I've bid low on a job or a gig and then I go and I meet up with another person there and I'm like, how much are you getting paid? And they tell me their amount. I'm like, God damn it. You're getting paid so much more than me. I, I guarantee you he lowballed all of these people. And then the second they showed up to the island and they see the dinosaurs, which I guarantee you he did not tell them. So when they show up and they see the dinosaurs for the first time, they got to be like, wait, you made dinosaurs and I'm getting paid this much? Fuck you. Dave, when's the last time you saw the movie The Nice Guys, the Shane Black film starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling? Oh, about a year ago. I love that movie. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene where they're uh, giving their, you know, their fee to Kim uh, Basinger's character. And I think she's writing out a check to like $50,000. And they're like, yeah, it's like, we'll do it for $5,000. She's like, oh, okay. And like rips up the $50,000 check. I feel like that's how Hammond hired a lot of these guys. He's like, I'm prepared to pay you $100. And they're like, $100 a day? Great. And he's like, oh, I was going to say 1000 But you know what? That's no, that's going right back in my pocket. But the Dilophosaurus no-shows. And then they go to the T-Rex paddock. And the T-Rex no-shows as well. And you hear Arnold's voice come on, and he goes, hang tight, we're going to try and tempt the T-Rex. And then like a little beep box comes out of the ground, a little cage, and it's got a goat in it. And uh, Grant says this. T-Rex doesn't want to be fat, he wants to hunt. Which is what I say, David, every time I go to Golden Corral and demand to uh, chase the employees. But this has got to be beat one of the goat box. I need to see more of these, right? Later on when he's like, oh, the ice cream is melting, I want him to press a button. And a little cage slowly raised from the floor with more ice cream. I want this park littered with underground cages that are ready to pop up with everything we need at a moment's notice. Okay, I was lost at first, but now I'm thinking, yeah, what if at like dinner time you go to the mess hall or the cafeteria or whatever and you're fed via a cage? I'm into that. Yeah, or you need to use the bathroom, you press a button, me. Here comes a turlet. This is my first punch up. More underground cages. Somewhere during the scene is when Ian Malcolm starts talking about uh, chaos theory to Dr. Ellie Sadler. You know, he's really like laying it on thick. And at some point he's like, oh, surely you, uh, you've heard of chaos theory. And I didn't notice it until this time around, but he grabs her hair while he's talking to her. And that was fucking creepy, dude. Yes, I, I noticed that too this time around. It had eluded me all this time. Like, hey man, knock it off. But you talk about him being a pickup artist. Isn't this like a pickup artist move to like little touches or something along a person? Female waitstaff, if you touch your gross dude, uh, whoever you're serving, like on his shoulder or something, your tip goes up 2%. Am I making that up? That sounds right. Not accurate, but it sounds right. But I mean, it's funny because when I think about Ian Malcolm's movie, I think of him, you know, his little rawr, rawr, and then his like little his shirtless scene where he's just a, a hunk. But uh, I don't. I did not remember these little creepy moments, and they're creepy, David. They're creepy. Well, especially like now you think of that shirtless scene in context. You know, I think in the moment we thought he doesn't need to have his shirt off, but now we know he didn't need to have his shirt off. Yeah, he was still running some game on Doctor Sadler there. But at some point during this chaos theory uh, discussion, uh, Doctor Grant gets out of the car, and Doctor Sadler follows. And uh, Ian Malcolm was like, "Oh, this is chaos. This is chaos." And they go off into the park, and what do they find there? They find a Triceratops who is on the ground. He's being attended to by a handler. Uh, this Triceratops is sick. This Triceratops is also stunningly real. I mean, golly, this movie. I know it's an effect, but like just to see the, the, the stomach rising and falling as it breathes, 
it's amazing. And like, no wonder Laura Dern cries. She's reacting like, it's so beautiful. I can't believe I'm seeing a Triceratops. I would have had the same reaction as an actor doing that scene. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Werner Herzog talking about when he saw the baby Yoda puppet for the first time. (laughs) He he lost it. He was like, this baby is so beautiful. Did you hear about this? Vaguely, yeah. He overheard the producers talking about whether or not they were going to replace the pup with CGI. (laughs) He was like, Use the puppet, you cowards! Like you, <laughs> if you have any dignity or respect for the the beauty that humankind is able to perceive, you will use the puppet. Uh, not a great Werner Herzog. Oh, but yes, David, I'm right there with you. The fact that this tranquilized Triceratops, like completely out of it, you get like some moments from it. Just like the sense of wonder is crazy. I mean, imagine you're a Triceratops watching this movie, David, and you're like, oh shit, there's a. Uh, I know that guy. It's Steve, and he's trinked out. All these humans are like touching your like barely awake body, popping like sores on your tongue, climbing on your. You're, the dinosaur's having trouble breathing. <laughs> what does the human do? I'm gonna lay put my full body weight on your stomach. You'd be like, what the? What is this fucking music? Get get the fuck off of my friend Steve. <laughs> I'm trying to slide down his tail like Fred Flintstone. Come on, you can't just let me have this. <laughs> Leave that poor Triceratops alone. But Doctor Sadler's on the case. Hmm, this dinosaur's pupils are dilated. David, it's like, that's pharmacological. Uh, let me go check its waist. And she sticks her arm into a big pile of dinosaur dookie. Ian Malcolm says this classic line. That is one big pile of shit. After uh, Sadler leaves the scene, you have uh, Malcolm and Dr. Grant there. And uh, they have this exchange. She's um, tenacious. You have no idea. David, I never really thought of twice about this line, but since we're watching it for a podcast, we're going to talk about it. What did you take away from that interaction? I thought it was a relationship thing. I thought it was like, she's tough, but I love her. Is there is there another read out there, Mac? Is there another interpretation? Yeah, I was right there with you, David. I just thought it was like a familiarity. Yeah, like, oh, you have no idea. Man, the stories I could tell you about Dr. Sadler. But now watching this, again, because Malcolm is hitting on her so openly, and then Dr. Grant, it's kind of, you know, later on he admits that it's annoying him. I almost wondered if this was like a, a sexual kind of um, like ownership thing. And that sounds more sinister than I want it to be. But they did like, she's tenacious. It's like, you have no idea, man, because we fuck. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, man, we have sex. I'm with you. I think there could possibly be an alpha element to it where it's like, you have no idea. I know things you don't. But I think Grant is too almost naive about this sort of thing that I don't know if he would play that game. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it seems more like a, I know her better kind of boast. I don't think it's full on like uh, we're, we've been in the bone zone. You know, real quick about Sam Neill. He had a cameo in uh, Thor Ragnarok. And he was like, I watched that movie and I had no idea what's going on the whole time. It's like, okay, dude. But you also were in Jurassic World in the movie Possession. <laughs> Possession is one of the weirdest movies I've ever fucking seen. Uh, you can't wrap your head around Thor. Maybe you're just, I don't know, time to get that brain examined. But Mac, while Sattler stays behind with the Triceratops, the rest of the gang take the Jeeps back to the visitor center, but the power goes out and the Jeeps stall out in front of the T Rex paddock. Nedry activates his virus plan and splits to gather dinosaur embryos. With the power out, that means the electrified fence is out too. Oh no, here comes the T Rex. And we get our first major action set piece of the movie, Welcome to T-Rex Attack. The T-Rex arrives, the lawyer Gennaro leaves the kids in the Jeep to get chomped, but then he gets chomped instead, which is very, very satisfying. Thankfully, the kids and Grant only go over the side of a dam. They'll be fine. While this is all going on, we get a lot of cutbacks to the control room. 
where Samuel L. Jackson's character is just chain smoking. Yes, he's so fucking stressed out. <laughs> like that's he just cannot <laughs> stop smoking. Which is funny because they show you, you know, visually, they don't have to say like I am stressed. But you look at Dennis Nedry's desk, that is not the eating habits of a man who is not stressed out. And the way that Ray Arnold is uh, just going from uh, one Paul Mall to the next, uh, he's definitely uh, trying to calm some nerves. But David, something else I love about Jurassic Park, this movie, not the park, that's a terrible place, is that the things seem to go wrong in like an organic way. A lot of times in horror movies, like characters do stupid things. But the reason things go wrong here, yeah, they're in a, a dinosaur park, but like it's not intended. I mean, there's chaos, but it's kind of unpredictable. It's not sort of like, in like for example, Jurassic Park 2, where they're like, hey, we're going to try and capture these dinosaurs. And oh no, here's Vince Vaughn actively setting the dinosaurs free, like welcoming chaos and like diving headfirst into it. The chaos that happens here, you know, as, as sort of follows along with uh, the chaos theory stuff that Dr. Malcolm is laying out, is it's just unpredictability. You could not predict that the night the Nedry was set to leave, that's when a storm would hit the island, which they thought the storm might miss, and all these things go on. So yes, they they are in a chaotic situation, but the chaos does not fall into that simple horror movie thing of like, don't go in there, except for breeding the Dilophosaurus. Don't fucking do that. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, because it is a hard thing to capture 30 years after the release of it. But, you know, you remember when this first came out and they're doing the the promotion for it leading up. They didn't really tell you what the movie was about. They just said, June 11th, come to Jurassic Park. They never showed you a dinosaur. They never gave you a plot. So as you're watching this movie, you don't know what's going to happen. It, honestly, it could have just been a movie about dinosaurs in a park, and we would have been generally okay with it. But the fact that the park devolves, you know, the, the, the fact that it just sort of starts to break down and the chaos starts to happen from that, it, it's, it's a hard thing to capture or to communicate, but golly, this movie really grabbed you and never let go. This whole scene, I remember watching it and just being absolutely like glued to my chair, like riveted. I mean, just the whole uh, scene of them trying to evade the dinosaur, which we'll get into in a second. But um, yeah, it's a great scene to watch now. But I just remember at the time just being like, uh, if they had been like fire in the theater, I would have been like, oh, let me burn. Let me burn a little bit longer. I just want to start cooking first. I got to finish this movie. <laughs> this whole thing kicks off for me or sort of, you know, goes into hyperdrive when you look over at the goat cage and the goat is gone and you start scrambling you're like okay where did that goat go and then you just see the leg of the goat drop on the roof of the jeep let's go that's the way to start this thing and it and again it really doesn't let up for a while after that but while this is all going on you know well let's go back to the to the command center with nedry and nedry's on the, the video phone talking to a guy at the ship as it's getting ready to leave. You know, they're trying to hold the boat so Nedry can get on it, you know, as the storm's coming. Uh, that guy on the phone, Mac, do you do you recognize who that is? Or would you happen to know who that is? I mean, based on the last movie, is it a young Tom Hardy? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's going to be director of photography, Dean Cundy. How did you know that was Dean Cundy? That's crazy. I, I, I saw it on IMDb. Because there's only, there's not a ton of people in this movie. There's really only like 14 people when you get down to it. Oh, sure enough, he was the DP on this movie. Oh, well, there you go. Man, Dean Cundy, Roadhouse in Jurassic Park? Shut the, what the fuck? What a career. But yes, David, back to the goat leg. Seriously, when that thing hits the roof, that is like a, you know, boom kind of moment. And I don't know if that happens before or after we start seeing the impact trimmers in the glasses of water there. But seriously, when this movie came out and when this scene was starting off like this, and you're not like ready to rock, uh, then uh, I don't know if you, you, you check your pulse. 
You know, I'll tell you what, Gennaro, the attorney, he's got the right idea. You know, as much as it as the scene makes him out to be the villain where he leaves the kids behind in the Jeep and, and cowers in the bathroom. The only thing he did wrong in that moment is he did not keep running. Especially if there's a T-Rex behind me. Like, just, you know, forget the whole getting fired by your boss because you left his grandkids to die. Like, if it's me, I'm running on that water. I'm, like, dashing the Incredibles. I, my feet are not touching the ground. Let's talk about this lawyer because he gets eaten on a toilet. Hasbro released a play set, I think last year, where you could buy a T-Rex and then buy, a, it also came with a little tiny Gennaro action figure that came on a toilet. Uh-huh. I mean, this whole lawyer on a toilet getting chomped on it, it's funny to me now. Was that funny to you at all back in 93? Me specifically, not really, but that killed in the theater. This movie's pretty good about those moments where you're in the middle of tension, you're in the middle of terror, but then there's a real brief comedic moment, and that's kind of just kind of what this was. But like to know that it's a play set now, ah, yeah, yeah, is... I assume that the, the guy who gets shot in the dick in RoboCop is also an action figure at this point. If not, he should be. But yeah, I think during my first viewing of this movie, I was still just like, oh, no, like the <laughs> T-Rex, you know, chomping people, still scared by it. But yeah, you're killing a character, a very unlikable character. So yes, we have our first kill and it goes down pretty easy right now. But David, this whole scene is just amazing. And when the T-Rex first arrives, the wide shot of it walking between the two cars through the fence you know, it's it's nighttime, it's dark. And so, you know, the imperfections in the graphics, they're just not as evident on my computer screen as maybe they are for some other people watching on like 8K resolution. But but it was still an amazing shot for me and another mark out moment. I just, that dinosaur coming through, when you get to see its full body, how much attention they paid to the way the dinosaurs moved, it's, it's a crusher of a scene. I had a mark out moment too around this moment. Specifically, it's going to be the roar that you hear from the T-Rex. Because like, you know, you talk about the visuals, you know, they're not dated at all. They're just old. You know, they're still impressive. They're just not as thrilling because we've seen them so many times, but we've seen them in sort of an instant replay because they're so impressive. But I think an underrated aspect of the production of this movie is going to be the sound and the way they created the T-Rex roar. I remember in the theater, you know, maybe this is just my my teenage imagination running wild, but like, you know, the the walls trembled. You know, it was just this overpowering sound. I marked out at the memory of that. I, it's it's impressive. Oh, I'm right there with you. I paused the movie at some point to look up uh, if Jurassic Park won the Oscar that year for sound editing. I had my fist raised to punch the computer in case it didn't, but it did. <laughs> but yeah, that dinosaur roar. I mean, here's the thing about dinosaurs is we just got their bones, man. We got their bones and we got some modern day animals and we really don't know what they look like. I mean, the idea that dinosaurs maybe had feathers is something they start sticking into like later Jurassic Park movies. But there was some... Um, Dinosaur Illustrator, uh, I interviewed on a podcast, and I forget their name. I apologize to whoever, but uh, they're talking about like, look at an elephant skeleton, David. If you looked at the skull of an elephant, you would have no idea that it had a giant trunk nose. And the way these dinosaurs are depicted, which is, you know, a lot of the time, like kind of like alligator mouths where their lips don't cover up their teeth all the way. And this this dinosaur roar, this T-Rex roar, there's, there's no recording of it, field recording back in the day. But I don't know what they did, man. But you're right. It is just absolute magic. That, that like, you know, uh, let's hear it right now. Look, I don't give a shit if you're a time traveler. This is what a T-Rex sounds like. That fucking sound is so memorable and it just hits you in a way where you're like, holy shit. That's actually kind of, uh, I got goosebumps, actually, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, to be the sound designer who, like, you know that sound in your head whenever you hear a T-Rex now? I created that sound. 
I invented what you hear when you hear a T-Rex. Yeah, and I'm not smart about sound terms, but it hit some inhuman sound level. I'm shitting bricks over here, David. I'm shitting them. But Mac, while fellow programmer Ray is going through Nedry's millions of lines of code, Hammond requests that big game hunter Muldoon retrieve his grandchildren. Ray determines that he can't fix this without Nedry, so the only reasonable thing to do is to shut everything down in order to restart the park. Meanwhile, Nedry's escape plan doesn't go so well, and he gets chomped by that Dilophosaurus that we didn't get to see earlier. Yep, you gotta turn off Jurassic Park, uh, pull out its cartridge, blow on it, and restart it. That is the best way to get it going again. The highlight of this chunk is going to be the death of Nedry, the escape of Nedry. He gets stuck in some mud and tries to wench his way out. I'm gonna play another audio clip real quick. Matt, can you explain this sound to me? Matt, did, did you catch that at all? Am I hearing things? No, David. Look, I'm, I'm a huge JP fan, so I, of course, have that scene memorized. It's when uh, Wayne Knight slips on that giant cartoon banana peel that uh, one of the dinosaurs threw out in front of him. Oh, did oh you didn't see the director's edition. <laughs> the, I didn't. The banana peel cut. Damn it. But David, uh, you know, this is a trademark Jurassic Park. I mean, I don't have to tell you that Lost World has also a, a fantastic a winching scene in this movie. Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't know if in the Jurassic World movies, if they had enough winching, but I'll tell you right now, they didn't. Seriously, these movies have more winches than a 18th century wine party. <laughs> it's hard to not make eye contact with you on a video call. <laughs> Yeah, that weird uh, bag of flour that you drew my face on and occasionally punched during the recordings. <laughs> I got to say, I, earlier I said it didn't bother me. Uh, David, it's starting to a little. But Mac, a little bit more about this Nedry death. You know, and this, What did you think of the death of Nedry? It's brutal. It's a brutal death scene uh, for a PG-13 movie. You know, the dinosaur, the Dilophosaurus, he's got the, the shaky uh, uh, collar, right, that comes out. But you look at this thing, it looks terrifying. Again, why did you make these things? And I'll tell you another problem with the Dilophosaurus, David. Did you notice how, how did it kill Nedry? Uh, it's, it squirted goo on him. A little yeah. poison goo on his face. What color was that goo, David? Greenish, brownish? It was black, David. So before the dinosaur killed Nedry, it put him in blackface. Dilophosaurus, you're canceled. 2023, not anymore, pal. Get out of here. Would it surprise you to learn that that's the Venom symbiote? Oh, so this part of the Venomverse? That's right. That was the seventh Jurassic Park movie that that question was about. <laughs> was seven right. Jurassic Park movies? Uh, Jurassic Park, Lost World, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, Jurassic World, Fall King, Jurassic World, Domain, Venom. <laughs> but strangely enough, not Venom 2, Venom Returns. Why, what did you think of the Nedry kill, David? I, I thought the same thing. I remember being in the theater and the crowd sort of like, aw, like, you know, when the, when the Dilophosaurus is being playful, I'm like, no, that is a prehistoric monster run away from it. And then Nedry gets killed in the Jeep. He drops his can of Barbasol. I'm not going to lie, Mac. I'm a fucking idiot, and I've always been an idiot. When I was a kid, I thought that was planting the seeds for the sequel. I thought the dinosaurs would <laughs> would incubate and be born from this Barbasol can, and that's going to be Jurassic Park 2. Now, me too, David. I was also a kid who read some article in the newspaper, <laughs> which uh, the hard-hitting San Antonio Express News I think I had an article that was like, here's a possible uh, Jurassic Park sequel ideas, which is the kind of bullshit articles I hate reading on sites now. But when I was a kid, I remember being in school being like, friends, gather around. I have the inside information on the sequel. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> thought this is one of the avenues that they were going to use to uh, yeah, potentially make a sequel. But yeah, I was right there with you. I didn't want to see Nedry die. 
I was scared that a dinosaur was killing a human. This human is like a thief. Okay, great. He doesn't deserve to be chomped by a by a dinosaur. Yeah, it's a good character to have. Like he's that level of character that you can have that you can kill and it means something. Anything lower than this and you don't care. But no, this was a good kill. So so far we've killed a lawyer, a cocky IT person. Who else on the '90s list are we taking down now? Let's see. Are we going to kill any uh, baristas? <laughs> are they going to die soon? A dinosaur is going to be like, why is it called a Vinti that's Italian? And then like just chop, chop somebody. But Mac, meanwhile, Grant and Lex are safe. They survived uh, when that uh, Jeep fell over the side. But Grant jumps right back into danger by climbing up to rescue Tim, who is trapped in the Jeep, stuck in the tree. It's a short action set piece we'll call Welcome to Jeep Tree. Uh, meanwhile, Muldoon and Sattler are going to find the abandoned Jeeps and then find Malcolm and what is left of Gennaro. They load up Malcolm in the back of their Jeep and continue looking for Grant and the kids when, oh damn, the T-Rex is back. Yeah, the short T-Rex chase here, it's not enough to say a full-on action set piece, but again, it's just uh, another little great moment. But David, these kids are a little freaked out at all this, and and I I think it's a a nice touch. I mean, (laughs) obviously they might be in like a quivering level of shock where all they could do was like shake and not move at all in real life, but you know, it's a movie, we got things to do. But Lex is upset, right? Lex is so upset, you know, because the only thing she can bring herself to say as though she's sort of, you know, as though she's been traumatized by this whole thing is he left us, you know, referring to Gennaro, like he left us in the Jeep to basically die. And I got to tell you, credit to Ariana Richards, you know, who's playing Lex in this, not just for being a child actor, for but for being an actor, period. She is so great at being hysterical. Like you said, you know, just wide eyed, catatonic, you know, just shivering. She... Everybody in this movie is doing such a good job conveying the terror that comes along with being stuck in this dinosaur park. Yeah, if I was Lex and um, a Jeep door opened for the rest of my life, I'd be like, well, I need new pants now because I have pissed mine. And yeah, when we find Tim, when he cr- climbs up into the Jeep, he being Grant, you know, he's like, Tim, you're, you're alive. And the first thing Tim says is also what? Uh, he says, I threw up. You know, he's. He is ashamed in a way that a kid would be ashamed of throwing up. Like, no matter what's going on, you were just attacked by a T-Rex. You fell over the side of a dam in a Jeep. The most embarrassing thing that's going to happen is that if anybody finds out you threw up. Now, David, the scene where they're climbing out of the tree and the Jeep gets loose, and now they're all of a sudden in a, a vertical chase where they have to climb to the bottom of the tree before the Jeep falls on them. When they get to the bottom... The Jeep falls over, but since they are positioned to where they're like in the driver's seat, they they are not crushed. Did this scene need to happen? It didn't need to happen, but I'm glad it did. It's just thrilling. You know, it's like you said, this isn't quite an action set piece, but you you, you have two halves that are coming together to make something very action-y. You've got Sattler and Muldoon uh, and Malcolm being chased by the T-Rex or having to get out of there real quick. Meanwhile, you've got Grant and Tim and, and Lex in their own bit of peril. Yeah, it wasn't necessary, but it, it was effective. This was really fun. You can't fault Spielberg or David Cap. Is that who wrote this thing? That's right. Yeah. For looking at this part of the story and like, okay, Tim gets out of the tree and be like, why does this have to be boring? Why can't it be absolutely thrilling? You know what I mean? So I, I'm not, uh, I can't hate on it. But yeah, it does like, it does feel a little much. It's like, why? We just survived a T-Rex attack. <laughs> Climbing down five branches has to, I almost have to have a heart attack. Yeah, but that's, you know, but that's also it. Like you said, you know, the reason Spielberg has children in these movies is to be the surrogate for the children in the audience. 
So to watch what these kids have gone through more so than any other adventure movie, man, I am exhausted as a teenager. Yeah, I never saw The Fablemans. Was there like a scene in there where you're like, oh, here it is. When Spielberg was a kid, he almost got crushed by a Jeep or something. I will say this, though. At the end of this sequence, you know, when they finally do make it down to the bottom of the tree, the Jeep falls back on top of Tim and Grant. And even Tim has a line, well, oh, great, we're back in the Jeep. In this dinosaur movie. This was the most unbelievable part for me. Like, I don't know. This just felt too unreal for me. <laughs> I like that line, we're out of the tree, back in the Jeep. But again, you also could have just been like, oh, Tim's in the tree. And then cut to them being like, well, I got Tim out of the tree. So this is like free movie, David. This is like extra content. Yeah, this could have been two hours and three minutes. Yeah. Instead. <laughs> we, we almost had it. But while that's going on, we're going to see Sattler and Malcolm and Muldoon. They got to get away from the T-Rex. We already saw the the ripple in the in the water. Again, you know, I just said it a moment ago talking about Ariana Richards and, and Lex. Laura Dern, her terror scream as the T-Rex gets closer. Give her credit. Everybody in this movie is acting their asses off. It's not a compliment I thought I would pay Laura Dern, but she's an excellent, terrified screamer. She really does look absolutely terrified at parts of this movie. So Laura Dern keeps crushing it. But Mac, let's take a break from the action and chill with Grant. Oh, finally. The kids, some brachiosaurs. Um, then meanwhile, Sattler and Muldoon are going to return to the compound uh, without the grandkids. And Hammond's going to tell a charming story about his history of defrauding customers. They just got out of a tree. They've just been chased by T-Rex. So Grant and the kids are going to take a moment to climb up in another tree and just rest for a little bit. And the, they all see some brachiosaurs in the distance. Lex is terrified because, you know, dinosaurs. Tim's like, all right, relax. They're, they're veggie sores. All right. They're not going to eat you. But then he also says, but I bet for you, they'd make an exception. Hey, man. What the fuck? We almost just died. Like, I understand this is a movie. We can dispense with the levity for like a few more hours. I don't know, man. Teenage siblings, you got brothers and sisters, David. You don't think that you would have been like being asses to each other even in this situation? I would have been crying my eyes out. <laughs> they would have been hitting me to stop crying. I flew up to Portland one time to do some shows. And when I was at the airport, I walked past these uh, two teenage kids. And the brother said to the sister, he said, you're so ugly. You have a face like a Chinese dragon. And to this day, yeah. I remember that bird because as I walked by, I was like, damn, kid, nice. Chinese dragons, David, they didn't have like, you know, uh, a certain style of them when I picture them, like flared noses and stuff. Not like your pointy snout, uh, like Game of Thrones style dragon. But yeah, they see the Brachiosaurus and Grant clears his throat and then makes a Brachiosaurus noise like or whatever. David, he did that pretty quick. Oh, what? You can't do a Brachiosaur noise? Not instantly. I feel like like a week later, he'd be like, I'm working on my brachiosaur or something. But is this dude like uh, doing animal calls at home at night? I think he is. I'll bet he is. I'll bet he just had that one and he was like, oh, good. It's a brachiosaur. I can kind of, I could finally use it. Yeah. It seems like this dude sucks to camp with. That's all I'm going to say. You know, while that's going on, we're going to go back to the compound. Hammond's having a pity party. He's got all these like buckets of ice cream out because, you know, the power is out. So all this food's going to go bad. Here's the thing, Mac. These grandkids, they would have been just as happy with Ice Cream Island. If you said, hey, get on a helicopter, come meet me at Isla Nublar. We're just going to eat a table full of ice cream. Best weekend of their lives. That would have been great. And yeah, also he says spared no expense. But David, there's some shots of the things on sale in the gift shop here. They spared some expense. This is typical just gift shop crap. You know, I was thinking this place would be maybe the kind of caliber of merch you'd see at like a Warner Brothers studio store, right? But no, this is like shitty circus prizes or whatever uh which real quick back to the very beginning of the movie when we see the opening shots of the people waiting to receive the dinosaurs the crew of the movie was wearing hats with the jurassic park movie logo on it 
I got to say the park and the movie using the same logo, something about that is pleasing. I do not know why. It is inspired. It's almost like, oh, they're making a movie based off this real life park. I don't know. There's something brilliant about it. I guess I'm a sucker for corporate graphic design, David. A weird. That's one of my toxic traits. But Mac Hammond here, you know, he's trying to spin some yarn like poor me. All I wanted to do was just make people happy. All I wanted to do was just bring magic to people's lives. So he's telling this story of like when he was younger, when he came here from Scotland, his his first show or his first gimmick, I guess, was a flea circus. And he's going through all the attractions and it's basically just like it's fake. You know, it's like a motorized Ferris wheel or motorized, you know, unicycle, that sort of thing. Like, hey, man. So you're just, you're, you're just a liar. Like that's your whole life has just been lying to people and getting away with money and scamming them. Like screw this guy. Yeah. And I love that Ellie Sadler is like not here for his story. Like he lays out the sob story and she's like, yeah, dude, but people are dying. This place sucks. Like you fucked up. Great story, uh, Saddington bear, but no, no thanks. And then Hammond is like, no, this is great though. I'm going to learn from this. And the next time the next Jurassic Park is going to be bigger and better. And she's like, no, just the lesson here is stop doing this. And he goes, creation is an act of sheer will. So basically, David, uh, John Hammond here is one of the early like mindset grind set bros who was just like, you just got to want it. If you're not successful, it's because you don't want it enough. We all have the same 24 hours, which is definitely not true. So the fact that Hammond is like, you know what? Here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to try extra hard next time. It's like, oh, shut up, John Hammond. Well, it should come as no surprise that also in that gift shop are copies of Seduce and Destroy. Oh, the... Uh, <laughs> the Frank T.J. Mackey seminar, yeah. <laughs> I, was gonna, I thought it was the book written by Dr. Fax from uh, RoboCop 2. <laughs> There's a lot of fun Easter eggs if you listen to every episode, folks. It's like a novel, you know what I mean? It's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, break time is over. Back to the park. Green and the kids wake up the next morning. Fully rested and ready to get caught up in a gala, 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 galamimus stampede. That's right. We also learned some of the dinosaurs are starting to reproduce. Whoops. Meanwhile, back at the compound, Ray still hasn't returned from resetting the power, so it's back into the park for Sattler and Muldoon. Sattler manages to restore the power to the park just in time for Grant and the kids to clear an electrified fence, but we lose Ray and Muldoon in the process. Rest in peace, you cleverest of girls. So we wake up in the morning... And a Brachiosaurus is right there, a giant dinosaur head. It's eating from uh, the hands of our heroes. I love that this movie, in between moments of terror, is not afraid to like slam on the brakes and be like, let's have some more like awe, right? Let's have some more like just wondrous moments of, of dinosaurs because it's something that Jurassic Park understands is that it's fucking cool. Dinosaurs are awesome. Like there's a reason why kids like dinosaurs, why it captures our imagination. There are these giant creatures and the animals on this kind of scale do not exist nowadays. I don't know about you, but the blue whale that was in my backyard died. So yeah, the fact that this movie is like, no, we get that. Part of the reason why you're here is to see, you know, dinosaurs that look real. So we're going to show you some. But Lex gets sneezed on by a dinosaur. So she probably is going to explode at some point with some dino virus. But Lex, Tim, and Dr. Grant are walking through Jurassic Park. I assume on their way to like the visitor center. I don't know if they had a Jurassic map in one of their backpacks. And Grant freaks out because he discovers some dinosaur eggs. Turns out uh, life found a way. And the dinosaurs, because they got some frog DNA, and some frogs in single-sex environment are able to switch genders. So uh, guess what, you fucking scumbag Republicans? We got some transgender dinosaurs, which means this movie is not for you. If you're a Republican and you like and watch this movie, this movie hates you and you're a piece of shit. So go fuck off and die. 
Oh, sorry, Florida. You don't get to watch Jurassic Park anymore. You said. You happy, DeSantis? You fucking monster. You fucking prick monster. You don't get to watch Jurassic Park anymore. We should do that. We should go to Florida and just take all the copies from all the half price yeah, books. Yeah, you don't get them anymore. But David, then we come back to the Ops Center. They're discussing doing a system restart. David, I'm not bored at all by this. You say break time is over, but did we, the audience, need a break? Is that what the point of the scene is? Just to like, look, a lot has happened. We're all overwhelmed. Let's just, you know, we'll, we'll have some decent, not overly written dialogue here, and we'll just all calm down for a minute. Sort of. You know, I think I think we're we're ramping up. We're heading towards the end of the second act, so we do need a plan, and this is just... You know, getting the plan into place, you know, being silly by saying, you know, we're taking a break and break time's over. But no, this is still thrilling in its own way. Like, we've seen this park. We know the kind of dangers that are out there. So just to run from one side of the compound to another is a really a terrifying task. This movie's great. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and the plan they set up here, you know, it all seems like logical. Like, oh, okay, we need to reset the breakers or whatever. It's not like in other movies where it's like, what if we just uh, believe in the power of love and then the <laughs> dinosaurs will go away? <laughs> but yeah, this is a scene that might feel like a drag, but I mean, kudos to the people who made this movie. I, I was not I was not feeling that drag. It goes back to what this movie does well, and it spent the first you know 40 minutes of the movie developing these characters so that when there are down moments, you can still enjoy spending time with these characters. Like It's these characters are just plotting their next move. But we're still engaged because they're engaging characters and we want to see them survive. That's how you make a movie, Mac. That's how you do it. So Arnold, Samuel Jackson's character, has not come back from, you know, trying to turn on the breakers. So now uh, we got to send somebody else. And Sadler volunteers because Malcolm can't go when Hammond is old. But Hammond uh, is a little reluctant. Hammond's still the chivalrous gentleman of the 1890s. And he's like, you know, it ought to be me going. And Sattler takes a little bit of offense to that. It's like, look, you know, we can talk about this when I get back. But here's the thing, Mac. It should be him going. He's the billionaire that built this park and got us all knocking on death's door. Fucking send him out to die. But that's what happened. I mean, Sattler uh, has got a little bit of speed to her. But imagine Hammond singing Dinosaur. He just instantly would fall over, you know? Like, there's those videos of, like, you see, like, kittens or dogs or puppies, excuse me, trying to jump. And, like, <laughs> right before they jump from like one chair to the next, like their back leg will slip, but they'll still try to jump. <laughs> like now now that I'm describing this, I want to see it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like the way the cartoon characters run where they jump in the air and their feet move, but they don't go anywhere. I think that's what, have, what happened to John Hammond. <laughs> but yeah, she goes instead and she manages to find the breakers and she's turning them on like one at a time. And she's about to turn on uh, all the electrified fences, including the fence that Tim, Lex, and Dr. Grant are currently climbing down. And so warning light appears on their fence. Would you call this, I mean, it's definitely like a little suspense set piece. Would you call it like a, is this action to you, David? It's not not action. It's not not action. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to call it like an action set piece or anything like that. It's thrilling. It's adventure. I don't know how else to describe it in the context of, of Punch Mountain, but it's, this movie does such a good job getting the most out of its thrills. A little thing like climbing a fence, a little thing like going to restart the power. We're tense every step of this way. Like, you know, it's just, it's expert movie making. I'm going to keep saying it, but it's going to keep being true for this movie. It is pretty funny that the movie Jurassic Park has two tense climbing down scenes. Like, I almost wonder if they're like, hey, do we need this second one if we already got a first one? And then Spielberg probably just threw a Clamato in that guy's face. Drink this Clamato, you creep. In my mind, Spielberg uh, drinks Clamato. 
But then it's also, you know, you, you want to have things in this movie that aren't the dinosaurs constantly being terrifying because there's a weird distinction to be drawn if you're the audience where it's like, oh, I want, I want these main characters to, to survive. I want them to get off the island. But if they could do it without killing any dinosaurs, like there's a disconnect there where it's like, well, well, don't shoot them or anything. They're still, you know, precious, majestic creatures. Like, so to, to you know, to be able to have moments that are thrilling, but not further villainizing the dinosaurs. I think, I think it's, it's exceptional. I also think it uh, saves a lot of budget. It doesn't cost much to throw a child actor from an electric fence as a, as a cost to animate a giant dinosaur. But David, this, um, they tell Tim, it's like, all right, you're going to jump on the count of three. And then the count of two, his fence gets electrified and he goes flying. What did you think about this? <laughs> I thought that when Spielberg dies, they better show this clip of Tim flying. Cause like, it's it's like the Paul Rudd clip of Mac and me that he shows every time he goes on Conan. It's just so ridiculous and out of place, but like I can't wait to see that in a loop. It's pretty wacky. But David, this movie does something here that I complained about in the last episode for The Last Jedi, which I call uh, Keep Up Cutaways. And we also talked about this in the Charlie's Angels episode. It's when you are cutting between three different like character threads that are taking places in uh, three different locations. All of them are very tense, when you cut between them, you kind of ruin the tension, especially if some of them are timing-based. Like in Last Jedi, they're about to execute John Boyega's character, and they like raise this like laser axe to cut off his head. And then when we cut back to that scene 30 seconds later, they still have not killed him. Like they're just like really just getting a good stretch in. But when done well, even if it feels like weird timing, it can build tension because they they blast Tim. <laughs> Off the fence, he lands, Grant goes, he's not breathing. And then I think it's like three minutes or, or it feels like it before we cut back there. And then he's like now just giving him CPR. So is he giving him CPR for three minutes? Like, you know, it the timing feels off, but that's three minutes. You're like, holy shit, is that kid dead? Like it's, if you're going to do a cut like that, that's where to do it. It wasn't quite like in Last Jedi where you, oh, this, he's about to do an action, which is going to happen one second from now where you think we're going to cut back and they're going to be like kicking their heads around like soccer balls. But yeah, this did not bother me. It, it actually worked. David, we, we've talked about memorable moments here. You call them souvenirs. Is there, do you, you want to give like a rough definition of that? Yeah, souvenir is going to be a keepsake that you take from the movie. Like it, maybe it'll be a line, maybe it'll be like an outfit, like somebody's look, you know. It, it's the thing you take away as as a memory of that movie. And and in this uh, in this chunk right here, Mac, this is going to be my souvenir of the movie, possibly the world's souvenir of the movie. This is going to be when Muldoon is is cornered by the Raptors and he sends Sadler off to go restart the power. But he's going to take the Raptors on and he's going to end up getting killed. But before he does, he says, clever girl. Like, anytime I have to use my peripheral vision now, I say clever girl. Anytime I meet a clever female, they're going to be a clever girl. Anytime I do anything clever, I'm a clever girl. This is, it's timeless, Mac. Yeah, anytime someone approaches me from the side, I turn and see, and I think at least, sometimes say out loud, clever girl. But you're right, David, because this movie is so big, so many small moments become iconic. Like when the characters first see the dinosaur herd, the way that Alan Grant, like, you know, clumsily, like, takes off his sunglasses, the way he, like, grabs... Dr. Sadler's head like turn so she could stop looking at the plant and see the dinosaurs. A scene here where Lex sees a velociraptor shadow and she like is holding some jello and she's so scared the jello's shaking. That's iconic. Because there's so many of these little moments, 
I tend to like look at other small moments of the movie that and be like, okay, well, what about this? You know, it, it definitely makes you slow down and appreciate and sometimes overanalyze things. For example, David, <laughs> when when Muldoon and Sadler are approaching the Velociraptor pen, Muldoon says something like, well, Nedry at least had the sense to leave the raptor's cage on. Muldoon takes off his safari hat, looks to the left, look, looks to the right, and then puts the safari hat back on his head. Uh, not an iconic moment, but a confusing one that I'm going to overanalyze because so many other small moments were iconic. <laughs> what, what was he doing there? What did that? What did you take away from the weird, take off my hat, well, put it back on? Oh, I think that's just, you know, that is a tough guy's way of fidgeting and being nervous. You know, rather than just wringing his hands, he's going to take off his hat, wipe the sweat from his brow, look around. Yeah, you know, it's it's letting you know that this normally unflappable guy is suddenly flappable, and that should be concerning. Damn it, David. This movie did it again. But David, did we ever find out what happened to the chain-smoking uh, Arnold, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character? Well, we don't find out what happened to him, but we certainly find out that his arm is no longer attached to his body, so we can only assume he's dead. You know, Sattler, she makes it to the little, the little power compound, little power hut. She restores the power. There's also a raptor in there with her so she's being chased around and she feels an arm on her and she's like oh thank god it's you and it's actually just the arm and that's it of ray it sucks to lose ray like nedry for the for the sake of the movie kind of deserved it muldoon died a hero's death because he's a big game hunter that's what he you know that's the way he probably wanted to go out ray losing ray you know to do a good deed that just sucked yeah ray did not show any interest in dinosaurs he's he just was super overworked yeah, I bet his death scene was not fun to watch. However, you can uh, buy a Samuel Jackson action figure for this movie that does have a detachable arm. So is it worth it? Maybe. But Grant is going to drop off Tim and Lex at the Visitor Center to chow down on some desserts while he goes off to find Sadler. But uh-oh, there be raptors. After being chased through a kitchen, Tim and Lex reunite with Grant and Sadler in the control room, where Lex learns her skills as a hacker are going to come in handy. It's an action set piece we're going to call Welcome to Raptor Attack. So this one's going to start with the kids getting dropped off. More excellent acting here. Like you said, you know, this is going to have the jello scene or this is going to have the jello shot with Lex, you know, trembling in fear, uh, seeing the shadow of the of the raptor. This is also going to have a really good little moment from Tim where, you know, he's just been electrocuted. He's still recovering from that. The way Joseph Mazzello stumbles around while he gets food is so charming. I thought he was so great. Yeah, he approaches the cake with uh, two different cake-serving knives or whatever you'd call those things. Yeah. I mean, look, if I survived dinosaur attack, I I would be going uh, straight to uh, my nearest uh, churro truck and just uh, doubling my weight. Uh, but what do you think of this whole sequence? You know, what do you think about like the raptor chase through the kitchen? Yeah, so now finally we get a little taste of uh, the raptor's violent potential when they take out Muldoon and they scare Sadler. But here we got full-on raptors in the kitchen. They're chasing after kids. So now this the whole like concern about kids, it's really kicking in. This is a tense fucking scene. And it is like a little bit like suddenly the raptors are the clumsiest things on the planet. But yeah, this scene is fucking tense, dude. It is fucking tense. It is it is effective. It's a it's funny to think of Jurassic Park as a horror movie. It's kind of what this scene is. It's just we're running away from a, a murdersaurus. Very much so. And we're also doing an effective job of sort of boosting up the villain of this last part of the movie because this is, you know, we're seeing them at the height of their powers, I guess, for lack of a better term. Like, we're seeing them being clever. Like, you know, we've been told that they're very clever animals, but like to watch them be cunning and all, but to also conversely watch them get outsmarted by the kids. The scene's awesome. A, a little too unbelievable when you get to the, like, Lex being reflected on the door of the appliance 
a little too much for me, but God damn it, the sequence is great. Yeah, it's definitely very effective. And I left this movie being very scared of Velociraptors. So this scene <laughs> definitely uh, contributed to that. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Laura Dern, who uh, later on when her and Grant reunite and they're in the basement together, uh, she's got kind of like a like a sweaty, wet look here. And I have to say, uh, it, she pulls it off. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not alone in that sentiment. I'm glad somebody else noticed that. Because, David, if you pour water on me, I look like a drowned rat. There's no way I suddenly, I know how to, like, comb my hair or something. But, yeah. But they're all going to reunite in the control room, Grant, Sadler, and the kids. Grant and Sadler are going to try to close the door, try to fight off a raptor. Meanwhile, Lex looks over, and she's like, a Unix system. I know this. And, again, that's one of the lesser souvenirs from this movie. But... I'll be damned if people don't mentally roll their eyes at the thought of Unix system. Here's the thing, though. At least the kids in this movie aren't brats. At least they're not Webby from DuckTales, you know, causing more problems and getting us into deeper messes to dig out of. They're helping. They're smart. That's the thing about this movie also. With the exception of, like, a poor decision Ian Malcolm makes with the flares when they're first trying to divert the dinosaur, everyone here is doing their best. Like, there's no dumb ideas. I, I applaud this movie for not showing us like stupid characters to get frustrated with. And yeah, and even the flair from Malcolm, he still was like trying to help. He didn't realize that like, oh, Dr. Grant successfully scared off the T-Rex. Not scared him off, but, you know, uh, redirected him. And the fact that Dr. Malcolm has kids that he would, you know, feel that like protective urge there for them. But the interface of the computer where the different file folders are being represented by different little buildings, that totally worked for me in 1993. David, do you remember the movie Mission Impossible starring uh, Thomas Cruise Mapather? I think going by the name Tom Cruise. I, I believe that's correct. Yes, I remember that. Some movie came out in 1996. And in that movie, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, sends a bunch of emails. And at that point in time, I had no experience sending an email. So the fact that when you sent an email, there was animation of a letter, like, like going, it's the dumbest thing you've ever fucking seen. But I, I, was, I bought it. I was like, oh, that's what email looks like. So the fact that computer files are like, oh, no, every file is like a little building and you, you work your way around it. Yeah, to totally on board for this. But Mac, Grant calls Hammond once they get all the power and the phones up and everything. He's going to call him to let him know Jurassic Park is back online. Now let's get the hell out of here. Grant, Sattler, and the kids exit through the gift shop but are stopped by those darned raptors. Wait a minute. That's T-Rex's music. By God. The T-Rex arrives in time to save the day. The gang escapes and we never look at birds the same way again. Yeah, so when Hammond is on the phone with Grant, all of a sudden the raptors come back in. We only see Hammond, and we hear some gunshots and some screaming. Hammond here, like, shrieks into the phone. Uh, Richard Attenborough, man, he deserves his paycheck just for this shriek alone because he did not have to go that hard. But it really is just like he just sells the terror of that moment. It's gonna come through the glass! <laughs> he crushed it. It's a fucked up shriek. It was out of place. I was, Especially, you know, we're wrapping this thing up. We're so close to the end. Like, everyone's had their moment for him to have a moment. Yeah, that was that was special. But yeah, you know, we're, we're coming down the home stretch. The gang is making their, their final escape from the Raptors, trying to get out of the, the visitor center. There's a moment here, which I really appreciated, and that's when the gang's going up into the vents to try to escape. They climb a little ladder. They go up into the heating ducts. Grant kicks down the ladder. Every time I watch this movie, of course he's going to kick down the ladder. They're just raptors. They're just dinosaurs. They very easily could not be able to make it up that ladder, but Grant has so much respect for his opponents in this one. He wants to make sure he does not leave anything to chance and kicks over the ladder. 
I, it's just a little moment like that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Grant has obviously seen the Poseidon adventure and was just uh, as mad as me that they weren't closing the doors after they left a room <laughs> so the flood wouldn't follow them. So yes, kudos to Grant. He knows what game he's playing. But but they do make it out. They're, they're exiting through the front of the visitor center. They're cornered by raptors. They might not make it, but here comes the T-Rex right on cue. This is going to be another markout moment. It's just... It's the culmination of everything you just saw. It It's the, the perfect top to this thing. I love it so goddamn much, Mac. It works every time. Yeah, and we're so scared of the raptors, and we were scared of the T-Rex from earlier. But when the T-Rex comes in to chomp the raptors, and again, uh, the T-Rex, underrated for its uh, ninja-like ability to sneak places. <laughs> earlier, its footsteps uh, were so heavy that uh, water was shaking. But now, I guess it just took off his shoes. And just walking in his socks to sneak up on it. David, are we supposed to be now scared of this T-Rex as well? No, David, because the music swells again and it tells us, hey, shh, 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 shh. calm down, my clever girls and boys and everyone in between. Just sit back and enjoy this chomping. This is a chomping not against you. It's a chomping for all of us to enjoy. So yeah, the music swells. The T-Rex chomps. Our heroes leave on a Jeep. We get one more T-Rex scream, David. And is that T-Rex not scream? <laughs> what do you call it? The roar. Thank you. The uh, banner falls down and it falls down and you see, what does that banner say? It says, when dinosaurs rule the earth. And if you don't mark out here, you don't like movies because that fucking ruled. 100%. Yeah, that was awesome. Did you, have mar- did you mark out there? I did. That's Yeah, I, I did. I, it's a classic. I mark out every time. I mark out too. But some survivors survive. That's why they're called survivors. And they're leaving the island, and again, a helicopter with no visible landing gear. And now, David, it's time for John Williams. He's rocked us. Now it's time to roll us, baby. Because he's doing the slow, the ping, 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 ping. The slow Jurassic Park theme you can have sex to. The contemplative one. And we're looking out the window, and we're seeing some pelicans. And I don't know about you, David, but I want to kill those fucking pelicans before they kill us. Every single one of them. That was my mission in life after I saw that movie. It was like, I understand, movie. I will follow and obey you, master. (laughs) Yes. That was the ultimate takeaway from Jurassic Park. If you see a pelican, slit its goddamn throat. You know, their their beaks, David, they got a pocket in there. Is that pocket big enough to to catch and kill my grandma? I don't want to find out. I kind of do. Not your grandma, but a grandma. Oh, uh, yeah, we'll see about that. And as we all think about how vulnerable all those grandmas in Florida are with all those pelicans around them, that concludes Jurassic Park. All right, David, let's look at the big board. How many markout moments did you have? How many moms in Jurassic Park? I had three, and I enjoyed every single one of them. How about you, Mac? Three as well. David, is this someone's favorite movie? What a dumb question. Absolutely. The only the only thing that makes it a question is if the sequels haven't lessened it. And I know that's not a knock on the first movie, but like, you know, the more movies come out, the lesser the quality, the, the more it feels watered down. And I hope that's not the case because this movie's this movie's tremendous. Yeah, I agree. 100%. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. David, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everyone knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? Well, one caveat here. I almost don't want to participate because this series suffers from too many punch-ups as as is. I feel like with every Jurassic Park movie that comes out, they're trying something different. I think, didn't they have like weaponized dinosaurs or like dinosaurs that shot lasers in this last one, I forget. Are you thinking of the cartoon Dino Saucers? I, I'm, I might be thinking of the Terrible Thunder Lizards now that I realize what I'm saying. By Savage Steve Holland. What a great show. But uh, a couple a uh, couple punch-ups. Don't kill Ray. You know, we brought it up. But then again, Mac, did they kill Ray? We only saw his arm. What, what if he's like this one-armed dinosaur slayer now? He's like, 
Turok or something. That'd be great. Oh man, that's the best punch up I've fucking yeah, he's he's survived. He just has one arm. And now he's like pissed that they left him on the island. He's turned into like a badass survivor. God damn it, David. That's great. Yay, good. Uh my other one, I I, I alluded to this earlier where you know, there's still dinosaurs. There's still majestic creatures. You don't necessarily want to like kill them or blow them up or destroy them. Well, then we got to get comfortable with that because they are the villains of this movie. And I think it would be a more satisfying action movie uh, if we were to see them go kablooey a few times. Now, David, I usually have the total confidence of a Rick Rubin that every one of my creative instincts is absolutely 100% correct. But here I'm going to ask you a question. What if Dr. Malcolm died? What if his character yep. died in this movie? What do we get by not killing him? We lose a couple of funny pieces of dialogue there. Uh, must go faster. Do we need that? It depends on how he dies. If he dies in like a heroic way, almost a redemption, because you've seen him be a creep and a sleaze this entire time. But if you find out he is good hearted and you find out he does something heroic to save everybody else, man, that fits right at home with this movie. Yeah, because like, what if after his shirtless scene, he gets chomped by a dino? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we need that. Maybe we're done. Maybe we're already too scared of dino chomps. At that point, David, I've, I listed a couple of punch ups as we went through this thing, but I have, I have one final one. So what is Grant's character arc in this movie? Oh, gosh, he learns to love kids. I think it's really it. Yeah. What about this, though, David? He sees that bird out there and he's thinking about dinosaurs and he's holding the kids and he's trying to keep them safe. But David, if you have a world full of dinosaur birds, is anyone truly safe? No, not at all, Mac. As we see the helicopter fly away, we see a door open up. He just pushes out both kids. Jurassic Park. No sequels will ever be made. This movie is uh, its the new mist. It's the darkest ending imaginable. No, I wouldn't do that. This movie's perfect. It doesn't need any punch-ups. Okay, David, please join me in the a Punch Mountain video store. And David, we have three copies of Jurassic Park to stock in this video store. And as you know, the Punch Mountain video store is an all-action video store. So what subsections of action would you stock these movies in? Okay, my first copy is going to go in franchise action. We've got six Jurassic Parks, or seven. I don't know anymore. <laughs> I'm scared. So that's going to go on its own shelf there. Welcome to your own shelf, Steven Spielberg. This is going to be your first movie on the mountain. Uh, certainly not your last. And my third copy, maybe adventure, maybe even family action. I know it's a very like tense PG-13 movie, but like, so I saw it, you know, opening night with my friend Nelson. And then two days later, I took my parents, you know, I talked them into it. it this is, a, I talked myself into it. Family action is going to be the third copy. I like that action adventure category because I definitely have sometimes been like looking around, you know, the streaming platforms or whatever. And I was like, you know what? I want an action movie that's a little bit more than like a John Wick style, like super action movie. I want an action adventure. I think that's an, an underrated component of a lot of films. So yeah, I think action adventure is a perfect place to stock it, but sure, family action as well. You know, David, it's Jurassic Park. Here's a fourth copy. Merry Yay! Christmas. Well, I'm taking it home. All right, David, now the hard work of determining Jurassic World's place on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. But David, at the summit, currently one, two, and three, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, all the way down at number 25 and 6, our Deadly Prey and Poseidon Adventure. That's at the base of the mountain. And at those big, you know, wooden doors with the torches that say, welcome to Punch Mountain, David, is number 27, Chappie. <laughs> Before we reveal the mountain's determination, where would you personally 
rank this movie as if your opinion meant anything. I, I oh, cheapers, okay. We're living in the shadow of the mountain. Its word is law. This is not a subjective show, David. Of course, uh, forgive me. My opinion, it goes high. It goes very, very high near the top of the mountain. I'll say this against it. You know, it is an adventure movie, and that is a hard thing to judge in the context of this mountain when we're used to guns and fights and villains and all those other sorts of things that don't necessarily apply to this movie. This movie is more of an adventure movie, but it is possibly the best adventure movie we'll get in the sense that the amount of of tension, the amount of thrills it's able to create out of the smallest of things, the chills that you get just watching the water ripple in the cup. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, there's so many moments like that that just work. I think that should be rewarded. You know, not every adventure movie is going to make it this high. Certain special ones will. I think this is a certain special movie. What about you, Mac? Yeah, you know, right before one of the Raptor attack scenes in this movie, I was thinking about the amount of action in here and how, like, when we watched Roadhouse, that movie did not have a lot of, like, full action set pieces, but there was, like, fighting throughout. The action in this movie, because it's action adventure, instead of, uh, you know, Alan Grant uh, boxing a dinosaur, bigger to bigger to bigger to hit him like a speed bag. You know, you get scenes like trying to climb down a Jeep tree and then trying to climb down the electrified fence or having to drive away in a Jeep very fast because T-Rexes in the mirror might be closer than they appear. So even though like the big set pieces in this movie, there might be three, this movie is action packed. And so, yeah, I, I do not fault it for being low on action just because it's not combat. David, I hope you followed your own advice and held on to your butt because uh, look out, there come some rocks falling off the face of the mountain, revealing the position of Jurassic Park. The golden letters that say Jurassic Park are now in position number four. So you now have Terminator 2 Judgment Day at one, Raid 2 at two, Matrix at three, Jurassic Park four, followed by Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, Prey, and RRR. A great list, but a lot of movies still left to do, David, but a great showing from Jurassic Park. And I also think this is a really great showing. You know, as people might know, this is going to be a, a movie that we picked as a mountain slayer. This is one we we thought could challenge the top of the mountain. Watching it again, you know, I realize it might not be the most action-y movie, but it belongs at the top of this mountain. This is the upper echelon of what action and adventure movies can be. Yeah, that's right. We probably should have mentioned that at the beginning of the show, but this is the first of our like mountain slaying picks because we we padded the middle for quite a bit. So like, let's do a bunch of movies that might have a chance of breaking into the top three. And so we're going to do this until episode 30. Uh, what are those other movies? Well, stay tuned. Oh, David, you hear that sound? That is the horn calling us to action because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes. We also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Inside Books Project. Inside Books Project is an Austin-based community service volunteer organization that sends free books and educational materials to prisoners in Texas. The project works to promote reading, literacy, and education among incarcerated individuals and to educate the general public on issues surrounding mass incarceration. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to Inside Books Project. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to that donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air because that's what kind of vain dudes we are. For more information on Inside Books Project or to donate money or books directly to them, visit InsideBooksProject.org. All right, folks, that's going to do it for Jurassic Park and that's going to do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at PunchMountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up next week. From 1992 and directed by John Woo, we're watching Hard Boiled. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.